So, our scripture passage this evening, I thought it'd be fitting since we're beginning this series on the Lord's Prayer to consider from the gospel narrative where the Lord's Prayer is written. And so tonight, our scripture will come from Matthew chapter 6, which has one account of this. Jesus delivers the Lord's Prayer during what many of us know as his uh, Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount of Beatitude. So it comes in chapter 6 of Matthew, and it begins with verse 5, and we'll go through verse 15. So listen now for a word from the Lord. Jesus said, And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in a moment of prayer? Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered here tonight in this space be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So tonight, as I've mentioned a few times, we begin a six-week sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. Most of us probably know this prayer by heart already. In fact, it struck me as I was reading this passage that some of you might have been instinctively ready to launch into the prayer as soon as I said those first words. Usually it's, it's a prayer that even if you're not a regular churchgoer, it's just one of those churchy things we all just seem to know. We can't really pinpoint when or where or how or who first taught us the prayer but we know it. We can remember praying it as children, perhaps, with our parents standing there in the pew on Sundays. We can remember maybe praying it in those moments when we just needed to pray, but no words came to us except for those ones. We prayed here with a good bit of regularity in this service. But can I make a confession? I I think I need to make a confession uh, to start here. Because the Lord's Prayer is simply one of those things that I've just known for so long, more often than not, when I pray it, it's, it's an exercise in rote memory, R-O-T-E. I remember uh, I was in a jazz ensemble 
uh, don't ask me to ever play saxophone for this, but in high school, I was in a jazz ensemble, and I played alto sax, and I remember one rehearsal after school one day, and our band teacher was emphasizing to us the, the importance of rote memory versus working memory. He explained, I, I didn't know the terms until he was telling us this, but he explained that rote memory is when you memorize something, and it's like you cram for a test the night before. You guys might have this experience. I know I have and I do, where you cram all those equations and all those facts, and then you just regurgitate it the next day on the test. And as soon as you walk out the building, you have forgotten everything that you studied the night before. Whereas working memory is when you learn in such a way that you're connecting some of the patterns and some of the material you've already learned. It's sort of a longer-term, deeper level of understanding. And our teacher's point in that rehearsal was that we needed as uh, musicians playing jazz to really engage that working memory because jazz is built on these chords and these meters and these different rhythms and you need to be able to connect sort of throughout the piece to really get at the soul of a good jazz piece to get beneath the notes that are just on the page. But more often than not, for the Lord's Prayer, it's a rote memory exercise for me. The words just roll off my tongue. And I should also make a confession, never here and worship here, but when I visit worship at other churches, has anyone noticed how the Lord's Prayer tends to come towards the end of a worship service? And so it serves sort of as this mental cue where I'm praying the prayer and not really thinking, but in my mind I'm like, ah, Lord's Prayer, one more song and I'm out of here. Anyone else? <laughs> so it seems, for me at least, I think awfully appropriate that we are spending Lent these next six weeks, considering the Lord's Prayer. Because Lent, after all, is about working at our faith. Each year we model these 40 days after the 40 days Jesus spends fasting in the wilderness. And so some of us take on these concrete tasks during Lent to practice our faith. We fast from things like ice cream, chocolate. Facebook seems to be one that's growing in popularity in past years. We give things up. But working at our faith can and perhaps should also be about taking things on. Amen? And prayer, I think, is a good place to start. In our passage today, Jesus instructs those gathered with him on the Mount of Beatitudes to pray in this way, Jesus says. But it's funny because before that instruction comes all these do nots. Did you hear them? Do not be like the hypocrites. Do not heap up empty phrases. Do not be like them. But when you pray, Jesus says, pray in this way. In praying the Lord's Prayer, we are invited by Christ to pray in a particular way. In giving us the Lord's Prayer, Jesus invites us to take a moment from our own self-righteousness and to instead take on the work of praying a working prayer, one that has words and language that reach far deeper than simply what we hear, what we say, or what's on the page in front of us. I forgot to bring it up here, but we're using, those of us who are preaching uh, in these next few weeks, are using this book on the Lord's Prayer by these two well-known scholars, Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon. And they write in their book that in obeying Jesus' command to pray in this way, they say, Our lives are bent toward God. I love that image. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, our lives are bent toward God in a way that is not of our natural inclination. 
We become, as we pray, Christian, they say. And so this Lent, we're going to spend some time taking on the work of bending ourselves toward God by challenging us to consider the Lord's Prayer not simply as an exercise in rote memory, but rather one of working memory. That by diving into each line during these coming weeks, we might reach behind the words that so easily come to our lips and consider what the deeper meaning is there for our faith and for our lives today. So, the first line that we're going to look at this week. Pray then in this way, says Jesus, our Father who art in heaven. The first line of the prayer is really a doozy. It might not look at, like it uh, at first glance, but it's a real whopper here. Because when we look at it, there are all of these questions and issues and implications that I think are loaded into just these six words. For example, is that first word, our, supposed to be something that's personally possessive, our Father? Or is it supposed to be something that's more communally inclusive? And in heaven, does that mean that God is not here on earth? And then what's up with this father language? I read this article recently entitled, Why I Raise My Children Without God. That will catch your attention. Why I Raise My Children Without God was the title. And the very first reason that the author lists as to why she is raising her children without God is that, according to her, God is a bad parent and role model. She writes, if God is our father, then he is not a good parent. Good parents don't allow their children to inflict harm on others. Good people don't stand by and watch horrible acts committed against innocent men, women, and children. They don't condone violence and abuse. Mm, That's tough to swallow. Chris Will and I have a professor who said last year, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, sometimes for people of faith, it's really hard to read the words and to hear the words of people who are non-believers because sometimes they ring true. The father language in particular is really hard for some people. If God is our parent, our father, where is God in those moments and those events when we suffer? If my earthly father was abusive or neglectful, what does that say about God as my heavenly father? But friends, this line about our father actually, in my reading, stands in direct opposition to the position described in that article. It speaks to a fundamental truth of the Christian faith. That through Christ, God in flesh, God who had a human face, you might remember our series last year, on the faces of Jesus, God who took on a human face and all the humanity that comes with it. Christ who spoke of the one whom he called Father. That through God and flesh, God has chosen not to abandon us, but rather to be in relationship with us. But for some, if this is true, it still doesn't answer that question of where is God our Father, God of relationship in those moments of deepest despair and need. There were a lot of articles that came out uh, in the wake of the tragedy last December in Newtown. Many of them were asking the question, where is God in all this? 
And the most helpful article I read on that question was by Jennifer Danielle Crumpton. She's a Disciples of Christ pastor in New York City. You might have read this. It was sort of really blew up in the social media world. She was writing directly in response to some who were implying that one reason this tragedy had taken place was because God had been removed by the courts and by administrators from schools. She started by asking the valid question, I think, do you really believe in a God who is confined to the rules and policies of our secular systems? And beyond that, do you really believe that God has been taken out of our schools? Or have our schools simply been opened up to include and welcome and treat with respect children of all faiths? But beyond that, she expressed the dismay that we should all feel when some people imply that God chooses to be absent from God's children. That for whatever reason, God allows tragedy to happen. She writes this, and I'm just going to read it because it was very helpful for me. She writes, a book I read years ago in seminary has been mysteriously following me around the apartment lately. On Saturday morning, I picked it up, The Courage to Be, by Paul Tillich. Tillich's brilliant and eloquent words spoke a feeling I had been grappling with for days and for months, no, maybe years before. The theistic God, the one of institutional doctrine and man-made creed, tends to disappear when tragedy strikes. Maybe, as some people would have us believe, that's because this God thinks that we've abandoned him shut the door on him, not included him in something he wants to be a part of, like stubborn, omnipotent gatekeepers. This God stalked off. But Tillich reminded me that when this God goes, another God shows up. The God of mercy, faith, hope, and love. The one none can really imagine in our wildest dreams, and the one none of us have a corner on. The one who stays no matter what we do hurts when we hurt and loves us beyond belief. The one that is for us all. This is what we proclaim when we pray to God as Father. That God the Father is in relationship with all of us, His children. Everything else that follows in the Lord's prayer is built on this truth that God is with us and for us in the good and the bad and the just okay and in the ugly. Our Father, who art in heaven. This first line of the Lord's prayer also points us to what I alluded to earlier in the announcements, which is the fundamentally communal nature of our faith. God the Father is in relationship with us, but we are also called to be in relationship with each other. So I was working on this sermon Friday night, and Aaron, my wife, was in the next room watching a documentary on the science of happiness. It's on Netflix if you get it. I don't know how you found it, but I went out and decided to take a break, which is really procrastination. Uh, And I sat there on the couch with her, and I just, I got absorbed by this documentary. Uh, The film was profiling different countries around the world and ranking them according to their happiness. 
Can you guess which country is the least happy in the world? And I'll give you a clue. It's not the United States. You're close. Japan is the least happy country in the world. They said that in Japan, uh, people there spend so much time at work that their happiness is affected because they spend so much time away from friends and family relationships. In fact, in Japan, they have a term for literally working yourself to death because it happens with some frequency. Kurochi. The film went on to talk about how happiness is not necessarily tied to material wealth either. By their measurements, the average person in a slum in Calcutta is about as happy as the average person in the United States. So what's the underlying reason for happiness, according to this documentary? Community. Our Father. Christianity is inherently a communal faith. Because it is in community, in relationship with each other, that we most fully experience the love of Christ. Think about the example of Jesus' ministry. He didn't do it in isolation. He gathered around him a group of disciples. On the night that he's betrayed, he doesn't sulk up to the upper room and eat by himself. He goes and sits at table and invites his friends, including one who will betray him to share a meal. Think about how you became a Christian. It wasn't by yourself. It wasn't your own idea. You had to be led to the faith. Perhaps it was through the example of your parents or co-workers. Maybe it was through reading scripture. Or perhaps it was the self-giving love of a complete stranger who did something for you in the name of Christ. We pray the Lord's Prayer together, out loud, in community, because it reminds us that we are not alone. To be Christian is to rely on one another. To be Christian is to be one child among all the others who are each loved equally by God the Father. To be Christian is to reach out to the other, to tap into our community and to experience how the God of faith and hope, and love, and mercy, and I would add grace, shows up in those relationships. So, pray in this way, instructs Jesus. And when you do, imagine in your mind's eye, listen for those thousands of voices who have prayed those same words before who are praying those same words now, and who will pray those same words in years to come. Listen for those who are praying alongside you. And when you do, I hope that you'll begin to feel your heart bending towards God. Amen.